I heard a knock at the door. I was a sophomore at the University of Kentucky and had agreed to be a resident advisor in which I got free room and board for a year, which was why I did it. In essence, I had to babysit 24 college students for a year. And that training week, before any of the students showed up, I was bold with the gospel, sharing Jesus as a new believer, just a lot of zeal for the Lord. And one morning, I heard that knock on the door. And I opened it up, and it was another resident advisor. And she looked like she was on a mission. And she said to me, when I was in high school, my father committed suicide. The church that I went to said that he is in hell because he committed the unforgivable sin. Is that true? How would you respond to that question? I put my hand on her shoulder and I said, Brittany, I am so sorry for your loss. I can't imagine the pain that you have experienced. I want you to know that the Bible tells us that suicide is not the unforgivable sin. And you could see relief come across her body. And I then explained to her that though suicide is sin, it's self-murder, it's not the unforgivable sin. And then I walked her through what Jesus described as the unforgivable sin. And that's what we see him doing in Mark chapter 3. Let me show you. Grab your Bible and turn with me to Mark chapter 3. We're going through a sermon series as a faith family through the gospel of Mark. And it's called On the Move. We're seeing Jesus on the move throughout the gospel of Mark. And as you're turning there in your gospel, uh, in your Bible to the gospel of Mark, I don't you know that um, we have completed the uh, 2020 budget and it is available for pickup out in the atrium at the information desk. And so if you're interested and would like to see what our budget looks like for 2020, you can grab that on your way out. Um, God, by his grace, we are raising the budget again because we want to continue to reach more people with the gospel. And I'm excited about the vision behind this budget, which you're going to hear more about in the weeks to come. Uh, we're going to have a budget Q&A this upcoming Wednesday at 630 in the Westwood Room, which is right out here across in the atrium. And it's just open to anybody who has any questions that you might have about this budget. Up until this point, Jesus has now just returned with his 12 disciples coming down the mountain. He has just selected his inner circle, and now he comes to a Galilean home. This is possibly Peter's house where they are in Mark chapter 3, uh, starting with verse 20. This is the same house where the, uh, the roof was torn off and a paralytic was lowered down in front of Jesus. This is the house where Jesus has been casting out demons. This is his headquarters for his ministry in northern Israel throughout Galilee. And this is where we're going to pick up here in Mark chapter 3 beginning with verse 20. Jesus entered a house and the crowd gathered again so that they were not even able to eat. 
When his family heard this, they set out to restrain him because they said, he's out of his mind. The scribes who had come down from Jerusalem said, he's possessed by Beelzebul, and he drives out demons by the ruler of the demons. So he summoned them and spoke to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is finished. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man. Then he can plunder his house. Truly, I tell you, people will be forgiven for all sins and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin, because they were saying he has an unclean spirit. His mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent word to him and called him. A crowd was sitting around him and told him, look, your mother, your brothers, and your sisters are outside asking for you. He replied to them, who are my mother and my brothers? Looking at those sitting in a circle around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of God is my brother and sister and mother. As Jesus's popularity grew, as his influence spread, his family was embarrassed and the scribes were enraged. And in Mark chapter three, both Jesus' family and the scribes try to stop him with false accusations. I want you to notice in the text the two accusations made against Jesus and then how he responded in order to teach how we can experience forgiveness and join God's family. The first accusation they bring is this, Jesus is crazy. You're crazy, Jesus. He entered a house and the crowd that gathered was just like the multitude by the sea in verses seven and nine. It's so large that they couldn't even eat anything. It's a modern day traffic jam in the city and the size of the crowd is so significant. Word has spread to Jesus's family in Nazareth, which is about 20 miles to the west. Word is spreading how popular he has become. It's like the paparazzi that follows around a celebrity. The crowds are out of control. So much so that verse 20, Jesus and his 12 disciples, they can't eat anything. They are in such high demand. And so Jesus' family comes to him and they're thinking, he's, he's gotten out of hand. This is ridiculous. He's let this celebrity thing go too far. This is too much. And so they set out to, verse 21, restrain him. That phrase restrain him means to arrest here is Jesus's family and they are looking to pull him away from the crowds. They're trying to get him away from all of this publicity. So they start telling people he is out of his mind is what they say in verse 21. That, 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 phrase, that word for out of his mind, it means insane. You see, in a culture that valued honor in the family, they, this may have been their attempt here to prevent Jesus from bringing shame upon the family. But it's interesting here how Mark sandwiches the scribes' rejection of Jesus in verses 22 through 30 between his family's rejection of him in verses 20 and 21 and then 31 to 35. Well, in response to the accusation that Jesus is out of his mind, notice his response Jesus' response is this, that those who obey God are my true family. 
Mary and Jesus' brothers and sisters, they're outside the house and they play a game of telephone. They, they pass the message in. It's like they're passing word in. Hey, go let Jesus know that his mom and his brothers and sisters are here. And so the, it passes through the crowd all the way to inside the house where Jesus is. And he receives word. Hey, your mom and your brothers and your sisters, they're outside and they're, they're here to see you. Notice here in verse 32, your mother, your brothers, and your sisters. Notice who's not there. Joseph. You see, after Jesus was in the temple at the age of 12, Joseph, he disappears in Scripture. Probably because he died. We don't know. But according to Mark and Matthew's gospel, Mary and Joseph had other children in addition to Jesus. Including Jesus. At least five sons and two daughters. In Mark chapter 6, verse 3. We're going to get there in about five years. (laughs) Scripture says, Isn't this the carpenter, the son of Mary? And the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon, and aren't his sisters here with us? So now at this point in chapter three, Jesus' brothers and his sisters, they don't believe in him as the Messiah. They grew up with Jesus. They saw him. He's perfect. Could you imagine having Jesus as a brother? Come on, mom, why don't you ever call him out? But John 7 verse five says, for not even his brothers believed in him. But Jesus here, he uses this opportunity to teach a deeper truth. And he asks the question, verse 33, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking at those sitting in a circle around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of God is my brother and sister and mother. You see, in the ancient world, family was everything. Families would often build homes and they could all be in what we would call compounds. They would have an estate in which all of the houses would be interconnected or they would build on top of each other because families stuck together. Now hear me, though God is for the family, though God is the one who designed the family, family is not ultimate. Jesus is ultimate. He drives home this point by declaring, do you want to know who my true family is? It's those who obey God. It's those who believe the gospel. It's those who surrender their lives to me. Those who trust in me. Those who obey my commands. That's my family. You see, the danger that you and I face is that we can take a good thing and make it an ultimate thing. Family is a good gift from God, but family is not everything. Jesus is everything. You see, following Christ means allegiance to Jesus is greater than allegiance to family. Question, is Jesus your first priority? Or have you allowed your affection and your allegiance to your spouse be greater? Is your love and affection for your children or grandchildren greater than your affection and your allegiance for Jesus? See, oftentimes, men and women who walk away from Islam, they have to choose. Keep your family or follow Jesus. I was talking with a man in our church this week who is working with a 
young Muslim man who lives in the area in which we are. And he's having to make this decision. Do I follow Jesus or do I keep my family? Parents, hear me. Loving your kids is right and good. It is right and good to lead and provide and protect and disciple. Yes and amen. But your children make terrible gods. They were not designed to carry that kind of weight. And your heart was not made for them to take that place. Jesus is ultimate, not your family. Which means this. When the time comes... When your children or grandchildren come to you and say, God is calling me to go to the nation's parents, do not hinder them. The International Mission Board is saying that the greatest hindrance to many people going to the nations are parents and grandparents. Uh, They want to see their kids grow up. They want to see their grandbabies. But hear me, family's not ultimate. Jesus is ultimate. And here Jesus is saying, if you're going to follow me, I'm your true family. You are my brother, my sister, and my mother. See, Jesus drives this home in Luke 14, 26. He says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. So Jesus is telling me to hate my family? He's saying, your love and allegiance to him is so great that in comparison, it looks like hatred because your passion for Jesus is so much greater. Hear me, Jesus will not play second fiddle to anyone else in your life. He is king, he is Lord, he is master. And here's Jesus, verse 35, making this universal, inclusive invitation. It's open to anybody. He says, whoever, whoever does the will of God, whoever believes the gospel, whoever trusts in my son, whoever surrenders his life to Christ, that is my family. So those who obey the Lord are his true family. I want you to see in the text the second accusation. And it's this. The scribes say Jesus is demon-possessed, demon-possessed. The scribes, verse 22, they come down from Israel because that makes topa, uh, easy, Kenneth, topography, easy there. (laughs) Let me say it like this. Jerusalem is up on a mountain, and so you have to come down. And sometimes, you know, when we say, well, my parents, uh, they live in Kentucky. So I'll say, we're going to go up to Kentucky. Or they'll say, we're going to go down to Alabama. We know what that means. Well, Galilee, where Jesus is, is north of Jerusalem. So there used to be a bunch of really smart Germans who said, hey, there's a mistake in the Bible. It says they went down to Galilee. Galilee's north. Well, it's not because of direction. It's because of topography. They're going down the mountain. You with me? Okay, so these scribes come down from Jerusalem, but this is also a clue to the reader where Jesus is gonna end up. He is gonna end up in Jerusalem before the scribes and the Pharisees. They're gonna condemn him for blasphemy because he claimed to be God. And it's in Jerusalem that Jesus will be crucified on the cross. But look at their accusation of Jesus in verse 22. They say he is possessed by Beelzebul. 
and he drives out demons by the ruler of the demons. Now, Beelzebul, verse 22, is a name that the Jews gave for Satan. They're applying that name for Satan to Jesus. They're referring to Jesus as the prince of demons. You see, the scribes, they're claiming that Jesus is possessed by Satan. Now, this was a serious and blasphemous accusation to charge, to charge Jesus with. Now, you see the, the Pharisees and the scribes, they could not deny the authority and the power of Jesus. They've seen him cast demons out of people. They see the miracles that he is performing. And so they've got to come up with some way to discredit him. And so they're saying, hey, he's demon-possessed. That's what it is. Well, notice how Jesus responds. He says, first, that's illogical. It's illogical. He responds with parables, verse 23, and asks, how can Satan drive out Satan? That doesn't make any sense. Because then Satan would be working against himself. Jesus' argument was that if he was working under the power of Satan, then Satan was undoing his own work. And so Jesus illustrates the inconsistency of the logic by referencing a civil war in a kingdom and a civil war in a family. Verse 24, if a kingdom is divided against itself, the kingdom cannot stand. So if a nation is at war with itself, it's going to crumble. There's a word for us, by the way. Verse 25, if a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. See, if a family is at war with itself, it's going to crumble. And verse 26, if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is finished. His, his end has come. Therefore, it's contradictory for Jesus to be accused of demon possession because Satan would be working against himself. But then Jesus gives a second response and says, it's impossible. It's impossible. Jesus then explains the impossibility of their accusation by illustrating a burglary. Verse 27, he says, but no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man. Then he can plunder his house. Now, this makes sense if you want to successfully perform a burglary, which obviously I'm not affirming. But if you want to, you have to tie up, you have to minimize the greatest threats. You have to take down the big dog, the strongest guy, whoever he is, and then you can take his possessions. But do you know what Jesus is doing here in verse 27? He's actually describing what he's currently doing. Jesus had entered Satan's domain and through his miracles, through his casting out of demons, he is binding up the strong man and he is plundering his possessions. Jesus was on the move and here he is. He is rescuing people. What does 2 Peter 2.9 say? That we are a chosen race, a royal race priesthood, a holy nation, a people of his own possession. We see Jesus in hot pursuit of calling sinners like me and sinners like you and the whole world to himself. He is binding up Satan and he is showing himself, I am going to bind you up and I'm going to take your possessions. I'm taking back my people. I'm going to rescue my people. Jesus came to destroy Satan's kingdom. And through his miracles, we see he is proving that he is stronger than Satan. Which then, uh-oh, this now forces the scribes into a pickle. Because 
Who is the only one who is stronger than Satan? God. So if Jesus is binding up Satan, what does that mean about him? Jesus is making it clear, I am God. He is forcing these scribes to, to realize, oh my goodness, he is who he, who he says he is. And as Jesus is simultaneously binding the strong man, taking his possessions, we see on this side of redemptive history, a coming day in which Satan will ultimately be bound. Revelation 20 and 10 says the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet are and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Jesus is making it clear to these scribes that their accusations are ridiculous because they're illogical and they're impossible. Then Jesus uses this as an opportunity to drop some truth on the people. Verse 28, he says, truly I tell you. That word for truly, it means amen. Meaning I'm going to drop some truth on you. Y'all, as we live in a world that lies to you, students, your friends are going to lie to you. Employers, your employees are going to lie to you. When you turn on the television, you are going to be lied to. When you look at social media, you are going to be lied to. In a world filled with lies, Jesus always tells the truth. Jesus will never lie to you. He is a truth teller because he is the truth. You can bank your soul upon the word of Jesus. He never lies. He always speaks the truth. Here he says, I'm gonna drop some truth on you. Truly I say to you, verse 28, people will be forgiven for all sins and whatever blasphemies they utter. This is the good news. In Christ, you are forgiven of all your sins. Oh, this is good news. Hallelujah. Through Jesus Christ, all your sins are forgiven. Isaiah 43, 25, the Lord says, I, I sweep away your transgressions for my own sake and remember your sins no more. Psalm 103.12, as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Micah chapter 7, who is a God like you? Forgiving iniquity and passing over rebellion for the remnant of his inheritance. He does not hold on to his anger forever because he delights in faithful love. He will again have compassion on us. He will vanquish our iniquities. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. Oh, what glorious news. In Christ, you are forgiven of all of your sins. All of them. And so for those of you who are holding on to your past, you keep shaming yourself for what you once did, you are forgiven in Christ. And he has secured your forgiveness through his own shed blood. In Ephesians chapter one, verse seven, Paul says, in him, in Christ, we have redemption through his, what church? Blood. 
It is secured by the blood of Jesus. Through his death at the cross, you are washed, you are cleansed, you have been sanctified, you are pure and holy in his sight, all because of Christ. But there's also bad news. And Jesus addresses that in verse 29. And the bad news is this. Outside of Christ, you are never forgiven. You're never forgiven. Verse 29. Jesus says, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. Here Jesus tells us what the unforgivable sin is. It's not murder. It's not adultery. It's not abortion. It's not pornography. It's not suicide. It's verse 29 blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Now, what does that mean? Blasphemy is speech that slanders God's character. Whether it's using God's name as a curse word or speaking about him in a derogatory or evil manner, blasphemy is something God takes very seriously. Even using the letters O-M-G, referencing God's name in frustration or using the name of Jesus Christ in a name that dishonors him. It's blasphemy. The third commandment, Exodus 20, verse seven, says, do not misuse the name of the Lord your God because the Lord will not leave anyone unpunished who misuses his name. And yet, this sin of blasphemy, it can be forgiven, verse 28. Look at verse 28. People will be forgiven for all sins and whatever blasphemies they utter. That's good news for us who have misused God's name. And yet, Jesus describes a sin that is never forgiven. Now, in the context of Mark 3, the unpardonable sin was what these scribes were doing in verse 22. They were calling Jesus demon-possessed. They were attributing the work of Jesus not to the Holy Spirit, but to Satan. And Mark underscores this and how the scribes, they were saying, look at verse 30, he has an unclean spirit. So Kenneth, what is the unforgivable sin? I put this in your notes. The unforgivable sin is the continuous and willful rejection of the Holy Spirit drawing you to Jesus Christ. Blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is to reject what the Holy Spirit is drawing you. He is calling you to put your faith in Christ. The scribes, they rejected the Holy Spirit. They accredited the work of Jesus to Satan. They rejected the Spirit, pointing them to Christ. Now this makes sense, doesn't it? The only unforgivable sin is to reject Jesus. It's to say no to the gospel. It's the Holy Spirit who is pointing you to Christ and you say, no, I'm not trusting in Christ. I'm rejecting the gospel. I'm gonna go my own way. You see, the gospel is only bad news if you reject it. And here they are, they're blaspheming the Holy Spirit. They're saying no to the Holy Spirit who is pointing them to Christ. Now, I've spoken with some of you before in which you have asked me, Kenneth, have I committed the greatest unforgivable sin? And here's where I land on this. 
if you're worried that you've committed this, you haven't committed this. Because those who have committed the sin of blasphemy of the Holy Spirit aren't worried about their salvation. They're not interested in Jesus. Those who are anxious that you have blasphemed the Holy Spirit, you haven't. Because you are, you're worried. You're, you're thinking, I want to make sure I'm in Christ. Who's put that desire within you? The Holy Spirit. He's given you the desire to look to Jesus. You want to be saved. And yet you're thinking, oh my goodness, have I committed this sin? Not if you're, not if you're wrestling through this. Here's the, the difference. If you yawn or shrug at the person and work of Jesus, then your soul is in danger. It's those who completely and utterly reject Christ. They are the ones who are in danger. See, this is one of those heartbreaking parts of evangelism. You share the gospel with your friends. You share the gospel with your coworkers. You share the gospel with your children and your grandchildren. You share the gospel with your family members and they say no. And it, it just, it hurts your heart because you're like, ah, do you only know? Oh God, open their eyes, help them to see. But if someone continues to harden their heart, if they continue to say no to Jesus, when they take their last breath, they cannot be forgiven. That ship has sailed. The opportunity is lost. And we even see in the parable that Jesus tells of Lazarus and the rich man, that the rich man who is in hell is in agony. He's thinking, can Lazarus just dip his finger in water and put a drop on my tongue and give me some relief? There's, there's remorse, there's angst. Oh, if I hadn't said no. If you're here this morning and you have just continually put off surrendering your life to Jesus Christ, you're in danger. You need Jesus. And he is a sufficient savior who went to the cross, died in your place, made a way for you to be forgiven through his shed blood. So Kenneth, what do I do with that? Turn from your sin and by faith you trust in him and say, I believe Jesus, you died in my place. I believe you died for me. I believe you were buried and you rose again on the third day and so now I'm surrendering my life completely to you. You come to that point and you're forgiven. Verse 28. That's the good news. In Christ, you're forgiven of all of your sins. So this is the impact point that we see from the text. Kenneth, what are you calling us to do? Trust in Jesus. And when you do, you find forgiveness and your forever family. This is what we see here in the text. If you trust in Jesus, you don't commit blasphemy of the Holy Spirit and you trust in Jesus, you're forgiven of all of your sin. And you trust in Jesus, God gives you a permanent family. That's the beauty of the church. A bunch of people who don't deserve to be here. All of us are dirty and unclean and evil, but we have Jesus. He's washed us and changed us, given us a new heart, adopted us in his family, wiped our slate clean, forgiven us of all of our past. This is who we are together as a faith family. And so, the unforgivable sin, it's not suicide. It's not pornography. 
It's not adultery. It's not abortion. Unforgivable sin. He's saying no to Jesus. This morning, say yes to Jesus. Surrender your life to him. And you will be forgiven. And you will have a forever family.